Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. I so much miss being here at Fairview. When I can't be here for a week, I hate it. Um, it feels like I've been gone for a month, and I was only gone for one Sunday. I'm so thankful for Pastor Don bringing the word last week. Thank you so much, brother. It's great to serve with staff who bring the word. And uh, thank you for being here last week. If you're back this week, thank you. Well, I guess you are back, right? It's not if, you are back. But um, I have so much on my heart that I want to share. I didn't get to preach last week, so this will be a two-hour sermon. I'm just kidding. Anyway, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. You can see that. Don't worry, we're not going to preach verse by verse today in both of those chapters. We're going to be looking at a synopsis of these two chapters and what Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. We're not in 1 Corinthians this week. You might be wondering, Pastor, when are we going to finish 1 Corinthians? Well, wait till next year. We're going to, we just ran out of year. And so we'll be wrapping up 1 Corinthians next year with some special mini-series, so to speak. Go ahead and take out your worship guide that you got on your way in. There's some blanks for you to fill out if you're that kind of uh, uh, student and you like to write and see and hear, then you can take some notes. But before we get into the message, I've got several announcements that are just bubbling over in my heart. Can I share them with you? Is it all right? All right. You're like, Pastor, whether we say you can or can't, you're going to go go the next screen. So, all right, let me go. Uh, number one, oh, I guess it would help if I turn on the remote. It always helps if you turn this silly thing on. Number one, we have the three trees of Christmas on December the 23rd. I just ta- told you about that, so I won't belabor that. But make sure the best way to share that is through social media. And we hope that you'll take advantage of inviting people to that service, the special Christmas celebration on December the 23rd at 9.30. Then this January the 6th starts a very important four-week series in the life of our church. I know that pastors say that every next series is the most important, but this really is very important as we talk about what is our purpose as a church, why do we exist, what do we hope to see occur in the life of our church, and how do we do that? How do we do that? And that's really the key behind this series is talking about the spiritual process of transformation in the life of every believer in Jesus. Because the, the salvation that God has given to us is wonderful, but he gave that to us for a purpose. And that is, so we receive his grace, we then grow in that, and then we learn to serve with our lives because of it. So this is going to be an important series. I just want to go ahead and put it up on the screen so that you could see. We've got a special transformed leadership workshop tied into that on the third weekend of January. We'll be telling you more about that in the following weeks as well. And then if you'd like to be a part of our church media production team, I shared this post several months ago on our Facebook page, but I think some of uh, us didn't see it. If you have a gift for taking good pictures or video, or if you like to be on the other side of the video camera and you would help us with video announcements, video welcomes like you saw this morning, if you'd like to be a part of that team, we are putting together that team. And uh, I'm looking forward to how this is going to help us in the days ahead reach more people, make more and better disciples of Jesus. Uh, Next, we have a special Christmas offering going on outside of our local church right now. And what we're doing is we're helping an inmate at Morgan County Jail. Her name's Brandy Lovett. I've been meeting with her for the last six months every Friday morning, discipling her. Uh, going through the book of Romans. We've been through the book of Hebrews. Uh, She is studying in Bible college right now, and she has 12 courses left. Each one of those courses in her Bible college education costs $97, 
and I have been overwhelmed with the response already. We've had seven families uh, say that they would like to sponsor one of those courses. So we have five courses left. If God would lay it on your heart to be a blessing to Brandy Lovett during this Christmas season, please see me or Pastor Don and we will give you the necessary information to get that to her. We're going to be sending her a Christmas card with all of those coupons, little Bible college coupons, taking care of her class. Folks, I wish you could be in those Bible studies with me on Friday morning and hear how she is just soaking up the Bible. It's incredible to see how God has and is transforming her life. Do you still believe that God transforms lives? Say amen. He sure does. And I've seen it. I've seen it in your life. You've seen it in my life. We've seen it all around us. And so this is a great opportunity to be a blessing to someone outside of our church family this this Christmas. And then uh, next. Oh, yeah. All right. So where was I last week? I was up in New England. I know. uh, I was up there in Yankee territory and uh, up in Connecticut at a church called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Now, you might have thought we were just going up to Connecticut to meet Paul Feinbaum. How many of you know who Paul Feinbaum is? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you don't know who Paul Feinbaum is. Okay, then this would not uh, mean as much to you. Paul Feinbaum's like the college football commentator. And Jason Clark, who's traveling with me, Brother Jason, noticed Paul Feinbaum. And so we're like, yeah, let's get our picture. And of course, Paul Feinbaum, you know who he picked in the college playoff? Auburn, of course. No, Alabama. Anyway, so we got a picture with good old Paul. And, uh, but that's not why we went up to Connecticut. Uh, he was coming back from the ESPN headquarters there in Bristol. So we were very close to there. But no, we were at Emmanuel Baptist Church at, at a pastor's conference, just really being uh, encouraged in our growth in the gospel. About 100 pastors were there. Uh, Jason and I had a chance just to fellowship, make relationships with other brothers in Christ who are serving in churches all across the country, coast to coast. Guys from California were there. Guys from New England were there couple of guys from the south. Um, In fact, I heard it was colder here than it was up there during those few days that I was there. But anyway, it was just a great um, time to be ministered to ourselves. This is their church. Oh, wow. Just the whole weekend was incredible. I wish you could have seen the church. This church was filled with people, six to seven hundred people. And if you know anything about New England, that's a miracle because churches die in New England. That's the norm. But God is doing an incredible work here in New England. And so we were able to be a part of the worship that day to hear Pastor Kerry preach. And you might wonder, well, who is Pastor Kerry? He's the guy that wrote the book Done that we put in the bag and also several other books. He's been here to preach at some conferences. And and so it's been a blessing to uh, get to know him over the years. And so he was just able to minister to us. And I wish I had time to tell you of everything that God did in my heart. One of the most memorable times for me was being in Pastor Carey's starting point class, hearing the stories of all these people who had come to know Christ through different people in the church, through also Pastor Carey's witness. And that starting point class was truly special just to go around and hear those testimonies. Um, You know, as I thought about that weekend, there are several things, several lessons that I could give to you today. But I really tried to summarize my thoughts best on the next couple of screens, and that is this. The church will fulfill its mission when God's people align in their purpose and desire to see a healthy church that is driven by the word, centered upon the gospel, anchored in grace, and guided by the Spirit. Um, 
That's what I saw up in New England. I saw a church family that was aligned, people that were aligned saying, we want to make more and better disciples of Jesus. And if we can't get there by loving Jesus, then we can't get there any other way. And so that's their mission. They, they, they were aligned. They were there. They were, they were following uh, the spiritual leadership. They, they were willing to let secondary things be secondary and focus on seeing people transformed and growing in the grace of God. And so the church will fulfill its mission when God's people are aligned. None of what God is doing at Emmanuel up there in Connecticut would have happened without a group of people who were willing to follow biblical leadership and without a willingness to invest in the ministry with time, their spiritual gifting, and with their finances. And so it, when Carrie went there six years ago, they were in need of one and a half million dollars of renovations. And you know, as I thought about that whole weekend last week, I also thought about what we are remembering this upcoming week in the life of our church. You know, Fairview over the last eight years has been through an incredible journey, shall we say, of transformation in our own right. We didn't always exist here. If you're newer to the church and you think, oh, well, Fairview's always been in this location. No, we weren't. Um, eight years ago, on December the 15th, 2010, that's what we were experiencing. That's our, our old building over on the other side of town was on fire. And, of course, the fire um, destroyed that entire building. Very difficult for our church family to go through that. You, of course, you have so many memories tied to a location and, and a building. And so that was eight years ago, roughly. And um, the Lord really taught us a lot through that experience of just seeing that. And what we realized that day, and I'll always remember this great lesson is that really what was burning that day was not the church. It was a building. But this was the church. This will always be the church. It was a group of people assembled outside of that building who were praying. Just let your mind settle on that photo for a second. This will be one of the most precious photos of my life. That's what church is about. And so, you know, that whole process of going through the fire and then the next several months, if, if raise your hand if you were a part of that transition committee. Everybody was, uh, whether you were on the specific committee or not, that was a blur. I don't even remember those three or four months of my life. Where did they go? They were so busy. Uh, there was a great teamwork, camaraderie, involvement. Uh, wonderful to see what God did. And of course, then God brought us out here to this location. I don't know if you can see that too. Oh, yeah, there you go. You can see that better. To this location, we went from 21,000 square foot facility and two, two acres to a 47,000 square foot facility in, here and 15 acres. We were able to go from being about seventy dollars to $100,000 in debt to being completely debt-free with over $400,000 sitting in the bank. Thank you, Peck Glasgow Insurance. <laughs> Actually, Cincinnati Insurance, Peck Glasgow was our underwriter. That's a great lesson to have good insurance. But the whole point of all that is God miraculously provided through that whole journey. Um, we, we moved out here in January of 2011. 
or close to that. We, uh, we had our dedication service on Easter Sunday of 2011. What we found out later in studying the history and the records of the church is that 60 years to the day when we dedicated this new building to the Lord to use as the body of Fairview Baptist, 60 years previous, the old building had been dedicated over on the corner of Fairview uh, or over on the corner of 16th and Magnolia. Only God could orchestrate that. Only God could do that work. And so this, this journey that we've been on over the last eight years, really you could sum up the same statements earlier about Emmanuel. Only this could happen if God's people were aligned in that mission and vision and in that purpose. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture today, I know we've been through a lengthy uh, introduction here, but bear with me because what we're doing here is we're sharing with you a burden and that is God has been gracious to us as a church family, hasn't he? We have received so much from the Lord. And God tells us here in this passage, this isn't our study, but he says that we want to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Everything that we have ultimately comes from the Lord. And so as we look at this topic today of tis the season to be giving, I I want to encourage you, don't assume that this is just a play or a ploy for more of your money, because it's not. It really isn't. And I hope that the tone and the heart that I have today comes across that this isn't just, okay, the church is struggling and we need you to dig deeper and give more. That's not the message. That will be uh, giving more of time, spiritual gifting, and finances will be a result of a right focus, but that's not the focus here today. The focus is living a life of generosity. Letting the gospel work in you in such a way that the overflow becomes a generous life in every area. Because we don't want to be this guy, right? Who's that? Scrooge. Yeah, we don't want to be Ebenezer Scrooge. Many of you will go to a play this year uh, or uh, watch the, you know, Watch old Charles Dickens tell the Scrooge. And so we don't want to be that. We don't want to be known as, you know, the curmudgeon, the stingy, greedy guy. You see, greed would be the opposite of generosity, right? So we don't want to be that. And so what is generosity? As we get into this passage, let's go ahead and read the text this morning. Uh, we're not going to read all of it, but let's read the first several verses of chapter 8 and then the first few verses of chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians 8. If you're there, uh, follow along with me. Verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how then a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but, gave, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus that, he, that as he had begun so he would also finish in you the same grace also, or literally the same act of grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this act of grace, or this grace also. 
I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness or the desire of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So Paul here in this passage, he's writing to Corinth, and he's saying that there's another church, the churches of Macedonia, who have gathered this offering to help the church at Jerusalem. There was the the, uh, churches at Jerusalem were going through a very serious time financially. They were going through a famine. And so the churches in other parts of the world were basically collecting a love offering to take back to Jerusalem. And the churches of Macedonia were actually poor themselves. But they were taking up this love offering. And Paul was writing ahead to the church of Corinth saying, Hey, you shared last year that you had this desire to help out with this offering. And I want you to know that your brothers in Macedonia have already collected their part. And you say that you love the church in Jerusalem. And he says, prove the sincerity of that love. Basically what he's saying is, if you love something, just follow the checkbook. Follow the finances. So many times our finances reveal what we truly love. And so Paul is laying this out here, and, 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 and really where he's going is he's going to the gospel. Because look at verse 9. He brings them back to the gospel, and he says, Listen, your generosity is going to flow out of your understanding of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So Paul's going to unpack this, and we don't have time to get into all the details of this study today, but um, he's going to unpack this. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 9. For as touching the ministering to the saints, referring to the saints at Jerusalem who were in a very difficult time financially, it is unnecessary or it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the desire of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago. And your zeal has provoked very many. Do you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, listen, there's people all around the known world that already know how generous you are, and your generosity has actually provoked others. So it's interesting. Paul is using kind of a way of uh, encouraging the church of Corinth as they get ready to take this love gift. And he says, yet I have sent the brethren, verse 3, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready. So Paul was preparing them for Titus and his uh, helpers that were going to be coming to collect this offering from the churches of Corinth. Look down at verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of obligation or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able. Let's all say that word out loud together, able. Ready? One, two, three. Able. He's able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Verse 10, now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 
What is generosity? This is not, an, well, part of the definition is not original with me. Part of it is. But what is generosity? Uh, write this down there in your notes. We, 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 we want to define this. Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, encouraging them to be generous in this gift. He said that the churches of Macedonia had already been generous in their love gift. And he's really going to be reinforcing this biblical principle of generosity in the life of a believer. And he connects it both at the beginning of this passage and at the end with one's understanding of what the gospel is. So what is generosity? It is the premeditated, calculated, designated emancipation of personal assets for the sake of another. Whether that's financial, now that's what we're talking about today, because that's, that's what Paul was talking about here. But whether that's time, talents, or treasure, we are taking those things and we are making a decision beforehand that we are going to be generous. So what we're going to talk about here in just a moment is some of the myths behind generosity. I think there's a lot of myths around generosity that we need to address and then talk about some generosity maxims or truths. So we're going to look at myths first, and then we're going to look at some truths here in this passage to really help us better understand, are we living a generous life and how do we do that? So what are some myths that we often find around generosity? The first one is so important because it really is a big myth, and that is this. A lot of us think that generosity is just spontaneous, meaning we're going to the store this Christmas and we hear the bell ringer, the Salvation Army, right, right? And we hear the bell ringer and, you know, and we didn't plan it, but yeah, okay, we've got a couple of extra coins and we drop it in the bucket. And we assume that's what generosity is. That's not what generosity is according to this passage we're studying today. A lot of people think that generosity is spontaneous, but look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. Paul says here in verse 10, he says, And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward or to desire to give this gift a year ago. And, and if you study this out, Paul, Paul is talking about being prepared. He says there in verse 3 of chapter 9 that we read earlier, he says that you may be ready a lot of people assume that generosity is just something that is done with spontaneity. Now, you can be spontaneously generous. I'm not saying that you can't, but that's not the only way that generosity happens. In fact, if you really think about it, someone's really only generous if they've ordered their whole life around the ability to be that. And we'll touch on that a little bit more in the message here in just a moment. But generosity can be, but it doesn't have to be, and it's not always spontaneous. In fact, an argument could be made that one is mere giving out of sentimentality or pity, while true generosity is sacrificial and intentional. In fact, Paul would address this in his first epistle to Corinth when he says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, again, speaking about this love gift to the needy church of Jerusalem, he says, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And so I think the first thing we need to tackle is this myth that generosity is spontaneous. All throughout this passage, Paul is clearly talking about a premeditated, designated, calculated gift that the church of Corinth was going to give to the churches of Jerusalem. 
So number one, the first myth is we think that generosity is spontaneous. The second myth that we see often is that generosity is determined by cash flow. Generosity is determined by cash flow. Look back at verses 2 and 3 of 2 Corinthians 8. Clearly, this isn't the case with the churches of Macedonia. He says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift. The churches of Macedonia were destitute themselves, but they were begging, literally, Paul and his Uh, companions to take this gift back to the churches of Jerusalem. And so that tackles this next myth, and that is that generosity is primarily determined by how much money you have. It's not. Look at the lad and the lunch. Remember the story of the little boy with the five loaves and the two fishes? He didn't have much. In fact, Philip said, Lord, what what are these among so many? There's a myth out there that we think that When we have more, we'll give more. We make the failed assumption that we'll be able to be more giving one day in the future when we're richer or retired or when we have all of our financial planning goals met. But that's not the case. If our approach is giving, if if, if our approach to giving is live, save, then give, we will never be intentional in our generosity. So generosity is determined by cash flow. That's not the case here with the churches of Macedonia. They were generous out of a deficiency of cash flow. Isn't that amazing to think about? The third myth that we see is that it's the amount that counts. Well, clearly here in this passage, Paul's focus was not on the amount that Macedonia gave. It was their heart. It It was their understanding of the gospel of grace. Look over at verse 12, though. It says, I love this verse, because this is actually in the context of financial ability. How many of you would say, you know, Pastor, I don't have a lot of financial ability in my life. Look at verse 12. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. God owns it all anyway. And he's entrusted to us a certain amount. But generosity is not found in the size of the gift, but the size of the heart of the giver. Let's say you're worth $100 million. And you give a $1 million gift this year. That could be generous. I have no idea whether it would be or not. But just remember the widow's two mites. You remember that story? Luke chapter number 21, verses 3 and 4. The Pharisees were giving their alms, and they gave, Jesus says, out of their abundance. But the poor widow lady gave out of her deep poverty. She gave more than all of them combined. Why? Because it wasn't the size of the gift. It was, it was the size of the heart of the giver that God was looking at. So it's not the amount that counts. It's not, generosity is not determined by cash flow. Generosity isn't just always spontaneous. Oh, it can be, but really a person who's living a generous life is very intentional, and we're going to see that here in just a moment. I think the fourth thing that kind of connects in with some of these others is that we think that rich people are the generous ones. Well, 
Clearly here in this passage again, we are, we are told that the churches of Macedonia were not rich. Well, they were rich in one thing, but they weren't rich in the other. They were deeply in poverty, it says in verse 2. But notice this, it says the abundance of their joy. I love how Paul says that in verse 2. They were rich in joy. They were rich in their understanding of the gospel. And can I say this? It doesn't matter what you have in your bank account. If you understand the gospel and you're rich in joy, you have a lot. They were abundant in joy. And somehow this compelled them to give out of their deep poverty. They gave not out of an abundance of their monetary means, but from the overflow of joy in their life. Wow. Isn't that incredible to think about? You know, we assume that rich people are generous, but do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Do you remember the story of the rich man? It says in Luke chapter 12, I don't have time to turn there, but Luke 12 verses 16 through 21 is the story about the ground of a rich man that brought forth plenteously. He was rich, and you know what he thought? He had a dilemma. Not how he could give all this away, but how he could hoard it up. You know what he said? This I'll do. I will build bigger barns. I think that's why Jesus said that those who trust in riches, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's so easy for us to trust in uncertain riches which make themselves wings and fly away as an equal to heaven. We assume that rich people are generous, but what about Scrooge? Was Scrooge generous? No, he had a lot. But it was all about him. It was all about how he could use others for his means. And so these four myths, generosity is spontaneous, generosity is determined by cash flow, it's the amount that counts, rich people are generous, those are myths. They're not true. But what about the truth behind generosity? Look at it with me quickly from this passage. Number one, we see that generosity is to be the priority and not the afterthought of our lives. Here in this passage, what Paul is doing is he's writing ahead to the church of Corinth and say, hey, you've been talking about this offering that you've wanted to take for a year. You've been talking about how you want to be overflowing and effusive in your love toward the church of Jerusalem. And now Paul says it's time to prove it. Prove the sincerity of your love. Listen, I am so thankful for the fact that you love Fairview Baptist Church. And Paul says here, listen, you say that you love your church. And he's like, listen, it's going to show by generosity being a priority and not an afterthought. Look back at verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 8. As it is written, he that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Generosity is to be the priority of our lives and not the afterthought. Um, this is how the world views giving. All right, And this isn't original with me, but this is a great way to just simplify it. Most of the world says, all right, you take the money in that you get from work and from, from other places, and the first priority is live. The second priority is save. And then whatever you have that's left over, that's what you give. That's the world's view of giving. Giving is at the bottom. Giving is, oh yeah, I got a few extra quarters. I'll drop it in the bucket of the Salvation Army collection spot outside of the front of Walmart. The Christian view is totally upside it's the upside-down kingdom. It flips it on its head. The Christian view of giving is you give first, you save second, and God takes care of the rest. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
Make giving a priority. Paul clearly in this passage was talking about how generosity should be the priority of our lives, not the afterthought. And why this verse is so important is because Paul is actually hearkening back to an Old Testament story there in verse 15, the story of when they collected the manna every day. And do you remember that there were some of the children of Israel who were collecting the manna and they collected too much? They hoarded out of a fear that they wouldn't be able to live off the manna. And what happened to the manna? It got worms and it stank like stale McDonald's after a year of not finding that you left it in the backseat of your car. How many of you have ever done that? Anyway, oh, well, actually, that food stays preserved for a year. That's very troubling. But anyway, the manna, whew, weird. The manna bred worms and stank. Why? Because they were not collecting it out of faith, but out of fear. And do you see how this connects to our finances? Most of our financial decisions in life are based out of fear, not faith. What if this happens? What if I can't trust God and give first? Are you crazy? I might not have enough to save, therefore enough to live on. That's exactly how God calls us to view this issue of gospel-motivated generosity. Generosity is to be the priority. Think about it for a moment. Which bill do you make sure gets written and taken care of first in the month? Most of us, it would probably be our mortgage, right? I mean, if you don't pay Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, you get thrown out on Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Anyway, you know, if you don't pay them, you're done. What if, and we're not paying bills to God, but what if we started to view our giving as, man, that's the first thing I got to think of. That is the first priority. And not that it's a, oh, yeah, I forgot to give this week to whether it's your local church or maybe support other worthy needs in our community. Give, save, live. So it's to be the priority, not the afterthought. We see that here in this passage. Number two, another truth about generosity is generosity should be the response of every Christian. Paul was writing to the church collectively here. And, and if you look at verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, listen, I'm not asking you to give above your ability. I'm, I'm asking you to trust God that he'll give to you the ability. What you need first is a willing mind, verse 12. That's what you need, a willing heart. And he says, for I mean not that other men be eased and you be burdened, but by an equality that now as at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that every Christian, 100% participation, generosity is to be the response of every Christian. Is that the reality here in our lives as a church family? Are we being generous with what God has entrusted to us? Thirdly, generosity is contagious. And I say this, genuine generosity is contagious. Look at verses nine, or chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 again. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. I know the desire of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Genuine generosity is contagious. You know what was so neat last night? I uh, was, was here at the church for the Joy Club Christmas party. Raise your hand if you're in the Joy Club and you're proud of it. Go ahead. Let's see you. Amen. Amen. We, we had a 
party up here uh, yesterday afternoon at three, and it overwhelmed my heart with just joy to see our joy club giving. One of the primary reasons they were having a party last night wasn't just to eat and sit around and have a good time, although we did, and we got some photographic evidence of it, didn't we? Right, Sister Linda? Got that picture. Anyway, at the end, we were able to put together bags for our gift bags for our shut-ins. You know what? That kind of generosity is contagious. Several of you in our church, I have seen you be generous, genuinely generous over these last several months to people in need. And I'm going to tell you this, that is contagious. It was here in the church of Corinth as they were influencing other churches around them. Generosity, genuine generosity is contagious. Number four, generosity begets a flourishing and fruitful life. Look at this here. It says in verses 6 through 9, it says, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And notice that it says, Now he that ministers seed to the sower both Minister bread for your food and multiply your seed. Seed that is sown in faith begets the fruit of faith in God's time, in God's measure. That doesn't mean that if you give $100 in the offering plate, you're going to get a $100,000 check in the mail next week. That's not how it works. What it might be is an abundance of joy. What it might be are things that money nor the best medicine can buy. Peace, joy, contentment. I would say this, generosity begets a flourishing and fruitful life. Paul lays it out here. He says, listen, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully by faith, you will reap bountifully. What does Jesus promise in Luke chapter 6? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Do we believe that? Do you believe that, church? Hey, these are, these are wonderful promises. God says, listen, a generous life leads to a flourishing and fruitful life. And God promises that in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. So we keep sowing by faith. We keep giving. We keep praying. And we see that the principle of compounding returns will occur. But ultimately, we do not give to get. We give because we have been given to freely by God. And so we give freely back. And so we don't give with fleshly expectations or of self-motivated manipulations. But we give because we see that we see that it's needed. We see that, I mean, right here in the church of Corinth, it was needed for them to be involved. The church of Jerusalem had a need. And so as you put these myths and these maxims together, and as you study this passage out more in your own personal time, here's some summary thoughts. One, oh, let me mention this one as well. I forgot about this point. Generosity is the overflow of a life that is overwhelmed by the grace of God. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 9, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 
And then if you look back at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What is generosity ultimately? It is the overflow of a life that is overwhelmed by the grace of God. God's goal has never been to guilt you into giving, but to grace you into giving. That's what this passage teaches. Paul is clearly saying, listen, if you understand the gospel, if you understand the unspeakable gift you've been given, then, then it begets a generous life. His goal is not to obligate you, but to motivate you to give from an overflowing and abounded heart that is captivated and guided by his abounding grace. And so, generosity, what is it? It's a response to needs, to genuine needs, because we see that God in his gospel has generously provided for our greatest need. And so, the church of Corinth was going to give towards a need. The Bible says in Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is a promise, church. And it's a promise that I believe wholeheartedly. And it's a promise I want you to keep in mind as I share with you our need here as a church for just a moment, and then we'll close the service. We do have needs here as a church, but we also realize that it is God that shall supply those needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now you might say, Pastor, are are we really that needy? Well, the Lord has been very good to us. He has given to us a paid-for, debt-free building. And so we want to share that just right now. We are so blessed, eight years here, debt-free, which in one way is great because when you give here, you're not giving to pay off bad decisions maybe from the past. Not that all debt-based decisions are bad, but let's just say a good majority of them are. Um, and so in, in, in one sense, you should know that everything that you give is going uh, to go to the future and not to the past to pay off decisions of the past. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Amen? And the Lord has been good to us and given to us a savings account. Now, let me share with you the need. Currently, the need here at Fairview, we have a monthly budget shortfall of about $2,000 in our general fund. That means that lights, building maintenance, staff, ministry um, uh, costs, uh, all those things, that, that's what our general fund is. And we have about a $2,000 shortfall right now in our giving, meaning we budgeted a certain amount in October. And for really the last 12 months, we've been tracking negative 2000 in our general fund. This trend has been ongoing for about 12 months. In our missions fund, we have a shortfall of about $1,000. And this trend has been ongoing for about four months since August. Now, I say, well, pastor, that's what savings is for. And in one sense, we, we, we do have what Dave Ramsey would call a, an emergency fund, a rainy day fund. And so right now we have about $410,000 in the bank. We have a debt-free property. But this time last year, we had $446,000 in the bank. Now, that sounds like a lot of money to anyone in this room, Right? Right? Hello, that's a lot of money. Do you realize that a roof, if we were to need to put a brand new roof on our building, it would cost over $150,000? How many of you are thankful for the heat today? Say amen. Do you realize that these units back here are huge and one of those units to replace it would be close to $30,000? 
And you know what? I don't know what God has for this money. I think that there's some great opportunities that we have as a church family in the future to be generous out of this. Because this isn't our security. It ain't. That money is not where our hope is fixed. And guess what? When we stand before Jesus one day, it's not going to be the question of, hey, who died with the most money buried in the ground? That's not going to be the question, is it? And so you look at this and you say, wow, Pastor, you mean we have, we've had to draw down on savings to the tune of around $36,000 over the last year? Yeah. So we can do that for a little bit, but that is not... Um, going to work long term if you get what I'm saying and so we've had to been dipping into savings to make budget for an accumulation of the last year we we were aware of this well before that and we met to actually trim the budget around May or June of this last year and then here in October we made further budget cuts and we'll continue to make those going on into the future but here's the reality we're still somewhat of a small church and small is such a relative term right I mean Small to you might be a 15-member church, and this might seem big. Some of you grew up in a church of 500 or 1,000, and this seems somewhat small. But the reality is, is we're a small church still in a big building, and clearly God gave us this big building for a reason. He sure did. And I wish I had time to tell you of all the details of how God did all that, but he did. And so the costs of a big building are not sustainable long-term unless we are going telling people about Jesus, bringing them with us, and, and sharing the good news of the gospel, unless we're growing as a body together. See, the whole point of church life together is that we grow in grace together. And that's not going to always be predictable. I love the illustration I heard this last week. We are not a fork factory. We're not here to stamp out exact copies of a fork. We're a spiritual greenhouse. And sometimes spiritual greenhouses get messy. And there's growth happening at all different stages of spiritual life in a greenhouse. And so unless we're going, unless we're growing, and unless we're giving, unless we're investing into the health of our church, both financially but also with being involved, being engaged, we're going to continue to struggle. And so I share all that to say my challenge to all of us is that we would all be involved in investing into the church here financially. But listen, if you have a spiritual gift, which all of us do if we know Jesus, and you've not stepped in and started investing and serving and being a part of a growth group, those are some of the things we're going to be encouraging you in the days ahead because it's really all about making more and better disciples of Jesus. So it's my prayer that God, through his amazing and abundant grace, would motivate all of us to sow into the mission of the gospel here at Fairview. My commitment to you as your brother in Christ and as your, and as your pastor, your spiritual leader, is that we will seek to protect, prioritize, and multiply your generosity for the spiritual thriving of our ministry and the furtherance of the gospel. We want our mate giving to make a difference. There's a certain group of us who are getting on the other side of 50, shall we say, and we're starting to think a lot about the legacy, right? The legacy that we're leaving. And you know what? Don't you want your giving to outlive you? There's no better way for your giving to outlive you than to invest in the gospel. To give to the gospel. Every serious giver wants to see their investment outlive them. 
And so with all that said, I just want to direct your attention back to a statement that I mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about Emmanuel, because <laughs> it's true for Fairview too. The church will fulfill its mission when God's people align in their purpose and desire to see a healthy church that is driven by the word, centered upon the gospel, anchored in grace, and guided by the Spirit. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. When you see the gospel for what it really is, it leaves you speechless. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Church, the whole reason that we're here today, by the grace and power and providence of God, the reason that we still exist as a body of believers is for the purpose of sharing this message. This message is worthy of our total life investment. It's not just about money. Y'all know that. It's about so much more. And I'm convinced that when we get this gospel just, when it just starts to bubble over and, and, and it grows, and, and you know what? You go from giving a certain amount, and yeah, you might be giving more of an amount, but really it's about the, the heart. Your, your heart's been enlarged. You're like, how can I not give? How can I not invest? and what God is doing here.